Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. You know, reading about climate change can feel immobilizing. But what if making a difference was as simple as just planting a few shrubs or flowers in your neighborhood? Environmental researchers say gardens full of native plants can save species of pollinators and other necessary wildlife. They can also help us preserve resources like water and green space. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with my good friend Peter Condra. He's an Oregon master naturalist and works for the Columbia Land Trust, which is home to the Backyard Habitat Certification Program. He's here to point us all in the right direction to start better using our garden spaces and broaden our knowledge of what planting natively actually means. It's Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Peter, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Happy to be here. The musician to gardener pipeline is real, and I am so happy we're on it together. (laughs) Full disclosure, Peter's a friend, and he's actually helped me greatly with my own gardening. But could you just remind me again, like, Like, why is it important to have native plants? So in terms of land use, in the U.S., we've got 40 million acres of lawn, uh, Mm -hmm. which is just under the size of Washington State. We have 43 million acres of uh, pavement, which is just over the size of Washington State. This is all, you know, kind of like low-hanging fruit in this conflict we have of biodiversity loss. There's just tremendous amount of uh, declines in birds and pollinators and all kinds of wildlife globally. So it's kind of just like, you know, there's so many things with uh, climate change and environmental issues that just feel out of your control. And a lot of this is, but with this opportunity where you're like literally sitting on lawns and pavements at your home in your um, neighborhoods, like you can actually convert that to usable habitat for wildlife that really helps kind of connect the preserved areas that we have because it's not just habitat loss it's uh, fragmentation we need to kind of weave through uh, a corridor for wildlife and so it's actually one of the only fun things i found in like environmentally friendly behaviors everything else is like eat less bacon eat less beef like don't drive don't travel it's like ah such a bummer but this is like (laughs) actually fun you're like hey all these critters just showed up because i planted this stuff and it's just like it's been a lot of fun to get into it. Yeah. So basically you're saying like biodiversity is essentially just more than like lawn or more than like (laughs) your ornamental shrubbery that looks really cute, but like that isn't feeding anything. And I never thought about this. Actually, Peter, this is something that's never connected uh, is when people think about like, oh, these, these species, they're just like, oh, we have a preserve. Like that's where they live. But it's like, how are they supposed to get there? Right, exactly. Well, what are some uh, common misconceptions that people have about native plants in Portland? 
Well, I think that people um, think of like plant communities in Western Oregon. They think of maybe like Forest Park or like a closed canopy Doug firs. You know, that's our state mm-hmm. tree, and um, and it's really actually overrepresented on the landscape uh, historically before colonization, before the state of Oregon existed. You know, indigenous land management would have kept the uh, valley floor uh, clear of a lot of shrubs and conifers. It would have been a much more open uh, grassland dotted with oaks. So really that plant Mm -hmm. community of oaks, grasslands and wildflowers uh, was historically much more part of what you would see here. So kind of picture like what something you might see driving around in some parts of California. Something that you told me, I remember that I was like, whoa, because when we go out into nature in Oregon, you know, especially in our area, it is, it's a bunch of duck furs. But when you were like, no, that's the product of like over uh, harvesting, like, you know, just from the timber industry and people being like, oh, we got to plant more. We got to plant more. And how they would just drop seeds from planes or just, Mm. you know, like it was just a ton. And that's how you would know, like, this isn't natural, guys. Like, this is just a thing that we made. Right, yeah. Doug fir's, you know, been tremendously useful for for timber production, so it's been favored on the landscape in that way. Uh, so you'll see that, you know, if you drive along the 26 and you see like a really dense forest, it's like that's not a forest, that's a plantation. So oh, so sad. I'm sorry. Just to think <laughs> that we're just driving, we're like, it's so beautiful, and you're like, it's a plantation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and like I'm not, I'm not totally hating on forestry. We all, you know, like need those products and services, but that's uh, that represents a major change to the landscape. And um, and in areas that are not as intensively managed for timber, uh, just fire suppression alone has really changed the plant communities because fire tends to knock back uh, dug firs, whereas it favors oaks. Oaks are more uh, fire tolerant. So, Yeah. So, I mean, it's a reason why we have, in our area, the Northwest, we have such blazing fires during during fire season because of the way that these trees were planted and the, the fact that there wasn't enough of a corridor for things to die out. Yeah, definitely. Thinning is a thing. Thinning through fire and mechanical thinning is a, is a way that some natural area managers and foresters are, are trying to deal with fire for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about climate change because at one point, you know, like you said, before colonization, before the timber industry, the forest, our environment here in Oregon looked very, very different. You you brought up the oak tree, which I think is really interesting because you basically, I remember you were very adamant of that I that I plant an oak somewhere in my yes. plot because you were just like, do you understand? This is a prehistoric, you know, tree. Could you explain <laughs> why like an oak tree is like, you know, so valuable to environmental um, sustainability? Yeah, oaks, uh, wherever they tend to occur are uh, what's called a keystone species. So they kind of they support a disproportionate amount of wildlife and other plant communities. So they just, um, one one thought on why this may be is that it's just a really old genus of trees. So it's been, it's there's been a long time for insects and birds to co-evolve with it, to learn how to uh, feed from it. Its main chemical defenses are just tannins, which are not like that hard to override or get past. So it basically is, uh, it feeds a ton of uh, insects, which feeds a tons of birds, it, and on and on. And so they're long lived. Also, they uh, store a lot of carbon. They're they're beautiful. They have tremendous value to um, to indigenous cultures in uh, Oregon and wherever they occur. And um, I would just say that if you can plant one, you know, don't be afraid of it becoming this giant thing that 
overtakes your lawn, like that's going to take decades. You'd be lucky if it, you know, really established and, and reached that. We That's what we want. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we return, more on gardening with native plants. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So what are some other good native plants to start uh, your garden? Like if you want to you know, achieve a natural habitat certification or just, you know, help out. Totally. Yeah. I, I will reference some of the ones that have just been kind of like the toughest and the requiring the least water. Cause that's, I think a great consideration across the board. So, um, in terms of trees, I always say, you know, go big. If you have the room, that would be of course the Oak, but also the Willamette Valley Ponderosa pine. You'll see that you can kind of tell what's working as you drive around freeways and see what they've been planting. You'll see those two growing together. Uh, Madrones are pretty fickle, but they're awesome. And you don't really, you're not exposed to water them. So that's cool if they survive. One that's kind of adjacent to Portland, but certainly native is uh, the, the incense cedar as opposed to the Western red cedar. Western red cedars are the ones you'll see often like dead along the side of the roads. They're not taking heat. So incense cedar is a really good drought heat tolerant alternative. In terms of like more wildflowers, things in the aster family are really great. So that's going to be stuff like goldenrod, pearly everlasting, Douglas aster and coyote bush. They all kind of take care of themselves all summer and then start blooming July all the way through October. So if you have a bunch of those there, they grow really vigorously. It might look kind of wild, but if they're all paired together, then they balance each other out. You get a really great late season bloom. In terms of shrubs, our state flower, the tall orange grape, not loved by everyone, but definitely <laughs> uh, planted a lot. Because it looks kind of like a weed almost. It, yeah, it's a little gnarly looking. I think you got it like it's really everywhere in like parking lots mm-hmm. uh, it, throughout like banks and shopping centers. They they got orange grape there and somehow it's surviving really well. Uh, so I think mixing that in with other tough ones like Buckbrush is a local form of Sayanothis that I have never watered at my house, doing great blue elderberry, ocean spray. Those are some of my favorite ones that are um, surviving the recent hot summers we're having. I love that when we talk about native plants now, we're actually thinking about what can grow natively here and withstand climate change. So I know, I remember you um, telling me to plant a lot of things that had the word California in it. And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. how is this a native plant? It's from California. And you're just like, (laughs) because it's going to be native here very soon. And I was like, no. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, you know, the truth on that is is we'll see. You know, we're all kind of speculating what, Uh, migration of of plant species will look like. Certainly a lot of foresters are experimenting with tree varieties, maybe of the same species, but maybe from a lower latitude or uh, bringing stuff up from the Southwest. A lot of um, evergreen oaks from California and the the Southwest are really great street trees. Um, A lot of California chaparral plants are perfect for small spaces. They just kind of naturally top out as like 
eight to 10 foot size like bushes and they're evergreen, they're flowering, drought tolerant, um, wildlife do use them. So they check a lot of boxes without being like in that really nerdy, strictly local, this is Portland native, you know, at some point those distinctions, when you stare a little too hard at it, like about native versus not are like, whatever, you know, you want to kind of think about the full perspective of your land use, you know, there's other things to, you know, nature friendly landscaping. It's, uh, are you, you know, using stormwater smartly? Are you providing habitat for pollinators? Are you not using pesticides? You know, uh, there's all these other ways that are beyond just like, is this plant native or not? Yeah, I remember you bringing that up, especially when discussing microclimates and how like, you're just like, yeah, something that grows, you know, 20 miles away may not grow that great here and that was just like what's happening you know (laughs) like like how do you figure that out like what are your tips yeah definitely folks in nursery will definitely be able to help you with that and to your point you know like a sidewalk strip in Lentz, a hot southeast neighborhood um, with reflective pavement everywhere that is not representative of any native conditions you know climate wise Mm. that local plants would have experienced that's going to be tough on pretty much anything Mm -hmm. so so that's just is what it is in terms of uh microclimates yeah you know some plants you might have read oh this is like a full sun plant well maybe it's going to survive a little bit better with um, some afternoon shade can really go a long way in terms of helping things uh, survive that. You can kind of create microclimates by varying the topography with some berms and some ditches, adding elements of shade in uh, strategic areas, maybe with a fence or just with another uh, shrub to kind of shade a, a younger one. So I think kind of looking for that and a lot of trial and error is just the truth about how this works. There's no guarantees, just, you know, I think if you're going to do this process, just remember to have fun with it. You know, it is a creative opportunity. Like I said, it's one of the only fun things I've encountered in terms of uh, (laughs) like, you know, fighting climate change, preventing biodiversity loss. So just experiment with it, make it your own. And if you can, you know, feature uh, native plants, at least in a portion of your yard, that's a great contribution, you know, and then experiment with those other, you know, fun ones. But if you were just like, okay, I want to start with three plants. What are three plants that you could just like, you know what, these three work well together and they'll get you on your way. Right. The way I'd like to answer that is just in terms of spreading out blooms throughout the season, because a good strategy is to have a long bloom season, staggered blooms. So um, I guess in order, you know, of kind of large, larger shrubs, uh, mm-hmm. the red flowering current is going to bloom really early, make you real happy on a gray April day when you see um, hummingbirds coming out for it. So that's a really good one um, for more midsummer blue elderberry. If you have room, gets real big. Uh, I say, you know, go big or go home. And then that's going to bloom in midsummer and for really late blooms, uh, coyote bush is uh, blooming like September through October. So you kind of uh, are bookending your year with the earliest and the latest. And um, that's a great uh, thing to do to just kind of not be like, oh, my one flower bloomed, I'm sad, now it's winter. You know, you can <laughs> kind of like, kind of draw it out into a longer season. So if, if Portlanders wanted to, Uh, really get serious about if they have the space. And I remember you saying like, you don't need that much space. Like even if it's like a square foot, if that's all you have to give, it's going to be just fine. Um, But like, how can Portlanders, if they want, 
how can they access the Backyard Habitat Certification Program, if that was important to them? Right, yeah. So the Backyard Habitat Certification Program is co-managed by Columbia Land Trust and Portland Audubon. You can uh, you know, find it through either of our channels or you can go to backyardhabitats.org. And um, that is one way that you can get a really neat um, service to help get like an individualized consultation on your site. You know, for a sliding scale, someone will come out and tell you like, here's what I see working here. Here's your ch- here are your challenges. And it's really in terms of this show being about what's special about Portland, that is such a thing mm-hmm. in terms of how much that program caught on uh, like wildfire and is just like there's a waiting list It's expanded to multiple counties throughout the area. Uh, so I would say hit them up and they'll give you some good pointers. You also get coupons uh, for uh, different nurseries that can help you get started. And, Ooh. you know, the gist of the program is a variety of uh, nature-friendly principles beyond just planting native plants. The They have a certification system, which is really just to help you kind of set goals. You know, uh, the lowest rung is very attainable. It's just like a small portion of your yard dedicated to a uh, habitat. And then if you're really uh, hardcore, you can go for the top certification, do everything native, but they'll make you work for it. So, you know, <laughs> that's for really hardcore <laughs> participants. Well, how much land does someone need to be able to share? Like, is there a minimum, I guess is what I'm asking? I'm not aware of there being a minimum at all. I think that they tend to work up to one acre in size is more what the cap is. Uh, But also just the website has tons of materials. Um, There's a lot of great resources out there. You can just kind of do your own research and uh, start to experiment with it. But it's pretty neat to have someone come out and, and kind of talk about it with you. So, the you know, it's part of a growing movement. It's really set a precedent, I'd say, in terms of how planting native plants in, in a neighborhood can really help bring wildlife back around. Cool. Well, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hanging out with me. It's so crazy. Peter, like, you just sort of you you just did this like you <laughs> 10 years ago you and I were playing shows and now you're just like you know this plant expert is just amazing one day you're young and wild the next you're like honey did you see that western tanager <laughs> or something you know like, I'm clearly not there yet uh, birding and planting two different things yeah birding is, is next stop for sure all right well thank you thank you for having me and I uh I'll see you at Slim's yeah <laughs> And now for your microdose of news. TriMet is rolling out a new generation of MAX trains for the first time in a decade. The sixth-generation trains have room for 160 riders and improve heating and cooling. The first generation of trains are now retiring after traveling some 2 million miles. Here's hoping they get turned into quirky food and drink spots. I don't know. I mean, I would totally go to a pod meetup of retired TriMet food carts. I mean, what's more Portland than that? And Oregon is now spending Medicaid dollars to house people, specifically those whose medical conditions would worsen without a place to live. It's not clear yet whether this approach will be cost-effective in the long run, but advocates are placing their bets that paying for housing up front will be more sustainable than paying the medical bills for our most vulnerable as they try surviving out on the streets. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes.
That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend, rate, or leave us a good review. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>